Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I am here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Today is Sunday, the 12th of the 9th. Michael, how have you been since Friday? Uh, very well, thank you, Gary. How are you? I am excellent, Michael. So I suppose we'll start on the, the funnest piece of news. We were talking about uh, Josefa Madigan saying that Sippo had investigated the Coveney's opponent exchanges and found that there was no lobbying. And I was saying I didn't think that was accurate. Subsequent to recording that uh, article, but before we put it up, so this was linked into the podcast, the last podcast when it went up, I talked to Sippo about it. And they said pretty explicitly they had never made any such claim. And the Sunday, uh, sorry, the Business Post had reported it as true. The Business Post wasn't accurate, misquoted them or misattributed them or whatever. The minister assumed because she read it in the Business Post it was true and just said it on national TV. <laughs> Uh, I'm not sure if that's a story you'll see picked up anywhere else. I would imagine it's, you know, an important thing given the uh, viewership of The Tonight Show and that kind of makes it sound like Sippo had investigated and found that the entire thing was great, which is maybe something it would be part of the public duty of media to inform people is not actually the case. We'll see. Still, though, on the other hand, Gary, in an age when people are becoming increasingly disenchanted and cynical about the role of what we could call mainstream media, it's nice to see the faith that uh, somebody, a senior politician, still has in a newspaper, particularly a newspaper like the Sunday Business Post, that they have such faith in the accuracy of its reporting. And I think the Sunday Business Post should take that as a compliment. And maybe, maybe as a, a sign that they should pull up their socks because people are going to be reading the Sunday Business Post and taking them seriously. They need to get their stories right. Well, I think the point we should take from it, Michael, is actually that it's good that ministers are paying such close attention to the media. But you've got to be sure that you pick a trustworthy news outlet. I mean, the minister would not have had that problem where she said something incorrect on national TV, Michael in a story of national importance, had she been getting her news from a news outlet like Ripped? <laughs> and, you know, we wouldn't have had to come around behind like a janitor and say, actually, no, that's not what happened at all. And here is the standards in public office directly saying it didn't happen. God, imagine if you, like, that must be so embarrassing for the mainstream press, particularly Gripped doing it. I think they'll probably get over it. I think they'll roundly ignore it. In the same way that story in The Independent where I was able to say, actually, the thing you said happened didn't happen and here's proof. And they just ignored me. Because what were they going to do? Correct telling people something obviously wrong? God forbid such a thing might happen. But You stick with what you have and it'll go away. You never accept fault. On the Wednesday show, we were talking about Amber Alerts. There are alerts that go out when there's enough electricity for expected demand, but it's getting tight. And should there be an unexpected increase, there won't be enough power available and something is going to have to go. And we were saying that these things have become far more likely in the last kind of two years and that they are what we're going to see as we go towards winter. And if they happen, there's going to be rolling blackouts uh, if it gets worse than Amber Alerts, but Clearly, the amount of amber alerts you have, if you're getting more and more amber alerts, you're getting closer and closer to the point where things just go to shit. And we'd had what? We'd had seven in the last 15 months compared to 11 in the 10 years before that. So we had the last one on Monday and we were talking about on the Wednesday show. On Thursday, we had another one. So three days between amber alerts. That's not good. Considering, let's see, we had 11 in the 10 years before... So, just above one a year, 
So two in three days is quite bad. That that's some people might say, Michael, that's exponentially worse. <laughs> you might, you could you could say that. But Ergrid did want to make the point first of all for people who aren't quite sure that the alert did not indicate a loss of supply, but rather the buffer between demand and available supply was smaller than optimum. They also pointed out for the as regards looking towards the future, one of the reasons amongst many, because there are many reasons, a very complex issue, were the fact that the sta- the plant in Whitegate and Cork Harbour and Huntstown in North Dublin, which represent 15% carry of the conventional generation, are offline. And there is an expectation that they will come back online uh, sometime in the winter. However, in the context of that, uh, and this is not a, a, a story which is unique to Ireland, we're, there has been talk at the consequence of the lack, or shall we say, the failure of wind because of climatic conditions or weather conditions to be able to take up the slack that they would have been hoped to have been in a position to do. That has been you, you created this problem. So wholesale prices of electricity have started to surge here. And it's not just here, it's all over Europe. I mean, some of the numbers have been terrific. It was reported, for example, that the uh, there was there was an auction for UK intraday power prices, which cleared at two thousand pounds per megawatt hour. Now that doesn't mean anything to me, but what makes the point is the fact that that price was nine times higher than the intraday power values that had prevailed at eight pm that morning, when that price at 2000 per megawatt hour was clearing at between noon and half past 12 in the afternoon. Spanish prices went up 7.5%, French prices went up, uh, prices in Germany went up to a record price. Now, in the midst of all of this, Poland, which is being threatened by increases in its electricity supply of up to 40%, and one of the reasons this particular, Poland is particularly hit is because Poland has greater reliance on coal for its power generation than any other country in Europe. The Polish government has come up with a rather clever idea, Gary. Is this another horrible conservative type idea that they've had? The sort of thing that a respectable person at the European level perhaps might say is a horrific infringement of democratic norms. Oh, I think at European level they might very well think that because it... Facing steep and unpopular increase in power prices, the Polish government wants electricity bills to specify the additional costs households face due to European Union climate policies. It'll be a dark day over Europe, Michael. <laughs> well, darker evening time if the prices continue to rise. Well, I, I think we, we're all in favour of transparency, are we not? We all want people to know what what costs, how how much, and anyway, the polls are are facing, according to Polish radio, a rise the in their the the utilities. So the utilities may ask that the electro the, the the electricity generating people may ask the regulator for a rise in prices by forty percent in twenty twenty two. And that's a fairly steep old rise there, Gary. Now, the Prime Minister says that power prices won't rise as much as that. However, Poland is under significant pressure 
uh, to put in the kind of investments that the EU demands for its climate goals. This is the good bit. It will cost, according to Polish government estimates, 415 billion, which is two thirds of its, the country's gross domestic product, for the country to reach the bloc's emissions goal by 2050. 415 billion quid, two thirds of its uh, GDP. Over the next 30 years. Yeah, I mean, that's just. Yeah, that's not happening. That is just, that's... Uh... We, we've seen a similar thing in Ireland. When any time anyone has bothered to work out the full costs of all of this stuff, there's been a sort of, well, oh, that's actually rather a lot of money, isn't it? There's a lot of money. I just, I think it would be a t- t- tremendous idea from now on that every time you get a bill from a utility, that it breaks it down into all of the component bits. And you have it explicitly there so people can see what they are paying. And you know what? People may be perfectly willing to bear that burden for the sake of climate change, for the sake of the planet, for the sake of their children. Or some of them might get a bit bolshy and start to say, well, is this really the way we want to go? Are there better ways of doing this? Are there better, cleaner, cheaper ways of generating energy? Why are we not? looking for natural gas why aren't we using that why aren't we fracking why aren't we doing things that so i don't have to spend a ridiculous amount of my income on paying to keep the house warm i think we should we should expand that program michael and that we should learn from the polish in this and in many industries we should give receipts that also say on them by our estimation without government regulations we could have sold (laughs) this to you for this can you imagine I mean, I would love the idea. Oh, God, that's such a good idea. For example, there are a lot of people out there, a lot of the ladies and some of the gentlemen, myself included, who like a nice bottle of sparkling wine, Gary, a nice bottle of Prosecco. One of the great marketing and indeed product successes in the wine business in the last few years. Considering the fact that not the vat, not the, but the duty, just the duty, the landed duty price of a bottle of Prosecco in this country it could potentially be four times the actual price of the bottle bought from the farm. And you break your, you, you pay your 15 euro, or your 16 euro for your bottle of Prosecco. And it, the, the receipt says, if it wasn't for the government, this bottle would cost you two quid. I think some people would find that interesting. If you go into a pub and you, you go get a receipt which told you the proportion of your pint or your large bottle of Bulmers, that was from the government. Again, I think the people are going, I knew it was a loss. I didn't realise it was quite that much. I mean, if you could do that on everything, Michael, from, you know, food to drink to the essentials of running a home, you might you, you might even be able to, to collate exactly how much money you give to the government and how much money a family gives to the government, particularly families with less disposable income. And it might turn out that actually, when you include income taxes and these things, that people could be paying very near to a, you know, a majority of their income to the government in one way or the other. We've talked before about, about how interesting it would be if you're looking at building a house or buying a house that was already built by someone else, and if you were to get a nice breakdown of the costs involved in building that house, the proportion of the take of that price that actually was directly connected to our our dear government. That would be interesting. Speaking actually of um, pricing things, Michael, we've talked a lot about Slauncher Care. 
Oh no, I'm getting worried, Gary. I'm getting worried. We've talked a lot about Slanch Care negatively. Yeah. And about how things like, well, when it was first announced, it wasn't even properly costed, which kind of indicates that it was never going to be taken seriously. And they've moved on that. There are deliverables, Michael. And if you ask people involved in it, they say, well, you know, there's there's uh, over 100 deliverables and nearly 100 of them are on track. And you know, some of them face significant challenges, but most of them are going you know, full steam ahead. Yeah. And it all sounds great until you ask, which are the ones facing challenges? And it might shock you, Michael, that the ones facing challenges are the things that make Slauncher Care as opposed to we need slightly more beds. But, and this is just an interesting little story, and I have a feeling this is going to keep coming up over the next while. Two of the uh, senior members of the Slauncher Care group resigned during the week. They resigned. There have been a couple of interesting comments made. And just uh, there's an interesting amount of stuff happening here. So one of them was a guy called Tom Keane, Professor Tom Keane. And he said that he was he was stepping down as he had come to conclude that the requirements for implementing this unprecedented program for change are seriously lacking. He was the chairman of the Slunch Care uh, Implementation Advisory Committee. He stepped down just after the director of the Slunch Care Program Office a woman called Laura Magahy. Interesting thing about uh, her is that she is a Deputy Secretary General in the Department of Health. Do you know, Michael, how bad shit has to be before a Deputy Secretary General is going to resign from a programme like this? Which the government fully supports? Yeah, the answer you're fishing for there is quite bad indeed. There would be political considerations of a very significant amount in that decision. I don't know, though. We have been working on the happy or unhappy assumption that for whatever reasons they decided that Slaunch Care was a useful banner to go under and it was because it was undefined and because there was no particular shape to it, there were no real numbers, it was something you could troll along with and say we were really dedicated to a root and branch reform and creating a whole new system, but it would never actually happen. No, there was always a suspicion that it was going to end up in not improving anything and still probably costing more money, but, you know, it would just, it would be, it would go away like the snows of yesteryear. I haven't been encouraged by the response of a lot of politicians in government around this particular one. Some of them, Gary, seem to be talking and like people who actually want to implement this. There is, on the other hand, the, the more than suspicion, Gary, that while there may be things that this plan would produce consequences, outcomes it would produce that would be better at the level of access or results or speed or what service, that the cost of doing it would be so high that it would eventually become absolutely prohibitive. And it wouldn't actually, the state would not be in a position really to bear the burden of this way of delivering those services. And that, in fact, we would be better off looking at, say, systems like the French system or the German system or the Swiss or whatever. There are lots of other systems out there. You don't have to be a doctrinaire, sort of hard line, conservative, libertarian. Oh, let's just get the state out of it, blah, blah. Even if you just said, listen, all we want is a system that works tolerably well that produces outcomes that are reasonably good and doesn't end up in a situation where, like, for example, the United States, which 
conservatives in the United States like to talk about their healthcare system as it, you know, delivers the best healthcare system, health in the world and all sorts of other good things. And that may be true for people of a certain kind, but it still has resulted in a healthcare system where 16% of their GDP is spent on health. And that seems to be really to be an excessive amount. There are all sorts of problems in that system. There are other systems where you get results like Germany, like several countries in Europe, where you have they've been able to do it. Canada has been talked about here. I don't think people are looking at the Canadian model sufficiently closely. Uh, I don't. They say, "Oh, it's working. It's working." Yeah, you talk to a lot of Canadians; they're a little bit more skeptical of whether it's working. But Gary, this particular version, even the people who are involved in advocating for a root and branch change to the way we deliver health to the non-private patient in Ireland are saying, you know, we maybe shouldn't be married to this. We shouldn't be looking at this as being the best solution. There are others. Professor John Crown was talking about this recently, for example. Yeah, we had the Tony O'Brien, the former uh, HSE chief, came out, said that this, uh, the resignations indicated there were fundamental problems with Slonchicare and the proposed reform of the healthcare system, which doesn't sound like a vote of confidence. But have you seen anything which suggests that there is a plan or indeed a willingness to basically deconstruct the HSC and replace it with Slaughter Care or another system? Or isn't it really rather the impression that there's a sense that what we're going to do is put some kind of a, a fix on, a retrofitted fix on, and then we're going to start pouring money in and we're just going to hope that there aren't any holes in the fix and the money will stay in the system? and will actually produce results. I remember talking to you quite some time ago now, Gary, and you had been talking to people who had been involved in the process which led to the creation of the HSE in the first place. And you said at the time that you had talked to a couple of the people who had been fairly substantial, shall we say, architects in this process, who had reached this, that conclusion, and that's a conclusion quite some years ago, as I say now, that the system was irredeemably broken and simply had to be abandoned and be replaced from ground zero with a new system. You would ask them, you know, could this be fixed? Could it be salvaged? And you'd get this sort of, they'd lean back in the chair and kind of look around and sort of, ah, maybe. At best, some just said, no, it can't be done. The problem, of course, is that Slonchicare always required steps that no one is interested in actually taking on a practical level. Because the current system suits quite a lot of people. I mean, the end results are terrible when you look at the waiting list, things like that. But it suits people. There are parts of the health service that are dysfunctional, but are dysfunctional nearly entirely because, let's say, for instance, uh, staff and unions wanted things done a particular way that was always going to clearly be disadvantageous to patients. And it was done that way. And now someone has to go, actually... That was crap. We have to change it. And no one wants to really do that because the people involved care far more about it than the patients do on a day-to-day -day level. So you're going to lose votes. You're going to lose votes pretty much across the board in the sector. So they're not going to do it. And then Slonchicare is mostly just small ideas combined with a few big ones where the big ones aren't really runners and are just too expensive and they're too awkward and they seem to have just gotten a lot of people involved who seem to have thought this is something serious and we're actually going to do this and are now discovering that um, 
Yeah, there's a couple of roadblocks you didn't quite see coming. And of course, launch care is the only option because we couldn't like pr- just privatize the entire fucking thing. Well, no, we could. that's that's just not going to happen. Could hardly be worse though. So like, I, I I keep seeing this, and people go on TV and they're like, "Well, the right ones to privatize the health service." And you do have to go. Have you looked at the health service? How would that make it worse? We couldn't. Or at the very worst, people don't get to see a doctor because they don't have money. They can't see a doctor now. But theoretically, they could see a doctor. Oh, and I'm sure that'll be very useful to them in three years. But then again, Michael, then maybe a year and a half saving. As I say, Gary, I don't think you have to be married to any particular ideological position regarding health to, to say that there are systems out there which work better than ours. And some of them may be based on a, on a private health model. Some of them may be based on a universal health insurance model. There are... You can pick one. I, In the sense of this stage, I don't really care which one you pick. No, I, I think we should go with any model. And there are many models that would work. And the only thing they have in common is that they all involve sacking a load of the people who work for the HSE and breaking the unions. And there you go. That's why it could never happen. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, uh, unions. Um, I, I don't want to... Uh, get up on one of my hobby horses, Gary, because you know me and my hobby horses, they sometimes run away with me. But there was an interesting story in from Scotland, which I don't know if you spotted today. I'm going to assume I can tell what story this is. Now, Michael didn't tell me the story ahead of time, but I did see a story about Scotland, which I saw and immediately went, oh God, Michael is <laughs> going to see this. <laughs> is it about the alcohol-related deaths in Scotland? It is about alcohol-related deaths in Scotland, Gary. It's funny you should have anticipated that. I, You know, as I said before, I, I think I have in the last 18 months probably consumed around a total of two bottles of wine. I have no shares in any alcohol-producing company, and I receive no monies from any lobby group or industry-based uh, association when it comes to alcohol. I want that to be clear. However, having said that, as we know, and anybody who's listened to more than two of these podcasts will know, Scotland has introduced, Gary, uh, minimum unit alcohol pricing, something that we are in the process of introducing here. We've passed the legislation. It's all done. It's just ready. It's just ready to roll, as it were, right? So they introduced it there, what was it, a couple of years ago? Yeah, this would be the minimum alcohol pricing, which was designed to reduce the harm of alcohol and which people, I was pointed out at the time, that the people most likely of being actually harmed by alcohol, the heaviest drinkers, are um, a determined bunch of people, Michael, not known for their sensitivity to price. Well, it's funny you should say that, but the story is in Scotland... Deaths caused by alcohol rose by 17% last year to the highest figure for more than a decade, new official figures show. Now, Gary, the thing about that is people will immediately say, oh yeah, you can't, you can't play fast and lose with that. The figures <clears throat> from last year had harm, from, uh, harm and hospitalization from alcohol had actually fallen. And we're now looking at the results of the pandemic. And I'm, I don't have a problem with that. I think that's, there's probably a truth to that, that anything t- connected with substances like this, 
uh, consumption of, I don't know, fast food, maybe smoking, cigarettes, drug use, whatever, will in certain sectors perfectly plausibly be attributed to people living through the pandemic. The point that I find that is curious about this is that in 2020, in the period, the pandemic period, the period that is being measured, like in Ireland, consumption of alcohol in Scotland dropped. Now, in Ireland, it dropped by, I think, six and a half percent, which is, by the way, lads, a massive drop, even though we then went on and saw headlines talking about the country being drowned in red wine or something similar. Consumption in, in Scotland dropped. Now, Gary, the point of all of these plans, these are, it's a form of, I suppose you could say this is a form of nudge, is it? You say MUP is a form of nudge policy making? Well, I mean, it's undemocratic and targeted primarily at those who know less and the poor. So, yeah, no, it all fits. I mean, maybe not technically, but it's got all the characteristics. I'm just thinking of the interesting results we found from the study, that massive study done on mask use in Bangladesh, which found that all of the nudge policies failed. So that was a curious thing. This is all based on, as people who have listened to me before will know, the Sheffield model, which is a mathematical model based around prices and consumption. But the core of this is, this kind of approach is based on the idea that if you reduce consumption, you reduce harm. Because by reducing consumption, that consumption will be reduced across all drinkers. That it will not be just one group of drinkers that will reduce, but you'll have, even though there are those who will say that actually lots of other studies will indicate that the people most likely to be price sensitive are moderate social drinkers, and they're the people who will reduce consumption earliest and most readily and most most significantly. Consumption will, will drop and therefore harm will drop. This, it seems to me, is an example of the fact that consumption has dropped, but harm has increased. And whatever about the intentions of people formulating these policies, and I'm sure the intentions are decent, Gary, nobody wants to see people getting into situations where they become abusive drinkers become seriously ill or die because of alcohol. And alcohol is, for a small proportion of the population, a very damaging and a very dangerous thing. Fine. But this seems to me to be indicative that the, the issue regarding how you stop people drinking abusively, how you lower the harm on people, is a far more complicated and nuanced thing than simply a question of price. Alcohol consumption in Scotland dropped in 2020 and deaths from alcohol increased by 17%. I mean, that seems like information, Michael, you should hurry to submit to Alcohol Action Ireland. And I'm sure they'll be very interested in implementing that into their models. Yeah, they will be after they've spent four hours asking me who the hell is paying me. So I, I saw that story and I, of course, thought of you, Michael. But I also thought of myself... Some people are sensitive to price, Michael. And yes. the assumption of the Sheffield model is that those people will stop drinking. And I thought, well, let's assume that's correct. These are people who have, let's make a, a broad generalization here, addiction issues. Okay. Are they going to stop drinking and then stop using any sort of narcotic? Or are they going to try and find 
other narcotics. Which is to say, if you increase the price of alcohol on the assumption that alcoholics will stop buying alcohol, do some of them do that, but then begin buying things like um, cocaine or heroin or yeah, whatever you're having yourself. And I found a uh, the BBC in July. So this is you know, a couple of months old. Uh, drug debts in Scotland reach new record level. Now, there is no attempt to link that to MUP and there is no evidence it is. However, it is consistent with the idea that increasing prices will cause consumers to seek alternatives, which in a more general sense is a very accepted business theory. Well, yeah, absolutely. And this goes back to one of the criticisms we have evinced about about this kind of approach before, is that these Mm -hmm. models, they are mathematical models, and they tend, at least on the face of it, they seem to treat, if we want to say consumers, as being passive, static actors. That they are not in any sense entrepreneurial. They are not capable, they are not dynamic, they are not capable of change or movement. In this case, it would be absolutely ridiculous for either of us to draw a line, a causal line, between the increase in drug use and the increase in in deaths from uh, narcotics in in Scotland and the increase in prices. It's worth noticing that the price increase in Scotland that has been affected is considerably smaller than the one which is proposed for Ireland. However, some years ago, there were uh, moves in Dublin, and possibly not just Dublin, but certainly, there were certain students' unions, Gary, that were doing these, what they used to call pound-a-pint nights, and you know, special offers on bottles of beer or cocktails or, or just plain pints, whatever it was. And it was felt that this was encouraging binge drinking and abuse of drinking and bad habits. So they stopped doing that. One of the things that happened was that there were there were some studies done by students at the time. You, know, you get students in social sciences who are curious about these things, which suggested that actually what happened was students reacted in an entrepreneurial fashion. And they went out and they said, okay, I have a certain amount of money. The students, as it turns out, are price sensitive, as indeed some abusive drinkers are. They're price sensitive, but the point was always that they're not brand sensitive. So students are price sensitive because they limit, most of them have a limited income to spend on this kind of thing. So they said, okay, we're not getting a pound of pint nights anymore. So they went and they looked for the best bang for their book, the most proportionate, the, proportionately what the, the, the thing that was going to give them the most return on, on their limited income. Some of them, started to use cheaper spirits, vodka, whatever that they were getting from the off licenses. Some of them decided to go to the head shops. Some of them went, went down to those friendly chaps stand on the corners in around the city centers of the nation and providing in the, uh, not in the white market, substances from South America and North Africa and, the, and Asia that would make them more party friendly. Anyway, Gary, that was the point. Yes, they stopped drinking pound of wine, but that wasn't that they stopped doing things. In fact, they may have ended up engaging in behaviours which were riskier, worse for their health, and put them in a situation where they were actually getting involved in criminality. And none of these are things which are a positive outcome of what was a well-intentioned policy. It's almost like you can control regulated products but unregulated products, as they're unregulated, are totally outside of your ability to influence the price. 
meaning that by increasing the cost of regulated goods in an attempt to limit their supply or to nudge people to use them more responsibly, you will, every time you do that, make illegal uh, drugs and unregulated products more appealing financially to those people. And also, at the same time, you may even take a legal product and create a market for the same product, which is illegal. The, the, the best, the most obvious example is, the, is the, the black market in contraband tobacco products. Not that long ago, there was actually a very small market in Ireland for contraband tobacco. Now it's estimated somewhere like 30% of all tobacco products in Ireland are not. Well, now that, that number may be wrong because I, I'm to, I, I seem to remember that there's been a bit of a crackdown. I don't know. But I know that until a couple of years ago, contraband had, had occupied something like 30% of the market. As the price of cigarettes went up, you eventually reached a certain point with taxation where people started, who were not willing to simply stop smoking because of that, but they were willing at that stage to seek alternative routes by which they could get at tobacco. And they would go to the, the car boot sales or they, or somebody there was a friend of a friend who they knew where they were selling fags out of the back of a car for five pound a packet. And that's what they did. And as a consequence of that, as because you had a substantial now proportion of people who are smoking, because the number of people who smoke has declined, but the number of people involved in the grey market has increased. I think, was it last year or the year before, for the first time in a very long time, we actually saw a slight uptick in the number of uh, the percentage of people smoking in the country. And that, I, I believe, I don't have straight-faced empirical evidence for it, is because the price prohibition, the price deterrence for uh, for people had become less important because the access to to lower cost untaxed contraband tobacco had increased mm. an interesting thing on on drug related deaths in scotland they have been rising since about 1997 yeah in 1998 you were looking at just over 200 deaths a year from drug related deaths in scotland by 2020 it was over 1200 and a point to make there is before minimum alcohol pricing in Scotland was brought in, alcohol consumption was going down. Yes, it had been for a number of years. But this is going rather notably up. Now, of course, the question there of, is this related to increased levels of consumption amongst the population in general, or in relation to a small subsect of the population using more drugs? Or is this just in relation to uh, purity issues or changes in drug use patterns? But you could very easily see a... uh, a situation, and I again, I haven't seen any evidence of this, but it would seem to make sense, where the reason you were seeing alcohol consumption go down was that you were seeing heavier use of drugs. And if that's the case, minimum alcohol pricing could have actually fed directly into this trend. Therefore, because while alcohol is quite a dangerous drug, it's well understood, and there are easier drugs to accidentally kill yourself with, Michael. Yeah, that's true. I Actually, it- the figures from Scotland, some of them really stand out. Uh, the figure uh, for deaths, I think, in 2020 was 1,264, which is more than double the number of deaths in 2014, I mean, over a short period of time. But one thing that really stood out for me was the report said that the median average age of drug-related deaths had gone up from 28 to 42 over the past two decades. Which is interesting, as that is an age demographic that would have primarily drank. 
Well, yes, it would have been more of a... a, a but so actually, where, where I said there that Scottish deaths have been increasing since 1997, there, are, there, there was 2005. They actually fell in. So that's not quite true, but it's close enough. It was only a small drop. I'll take it, Michael. Yeah, it's fairly close to it. But anyway, there you go. Um, it's in the post-minimum unit alcohol pricing in Scotland. We've seen a decline in consumption and 17% increase in alcohol-related deaths. There was there was actually one point I wanted to make on the, the MUP and if it contributed to a pattern of drug use in, in the wider population. Policies like MUP, because they try and, and nudge you, they can't control what people do, but they can influence existing societal trends. And a problem I think you see with a lot of NGO and civil service-led stuff is it just assumes you push the button, you get your money. Yeah. And that's it. Whereas if this is correct, and this is what we saw in Scotland, well, the question becomes, is Ireland culturally similar enough that were you to implement the same thing in Ireland, you would expect to see a percentage of the population turn towards drugs? And if they turn towards drugs, will that increase the likelihood of a negative outcome for them of whatever severity? And if that is the case, then the people who pushed minimal alcohol pricing will lead to a certain amount of those uh, negative consequences. And I think can be morally blamed for a certain amount of those negative consequences. Because if you want to influence people without them realizing they're being influenced and it ends negatively for them, okay, this is what you wanted to happen. You took steps to do this. You may not have intended this consequence, but here it is. And I'd just be curious if Alcohol Action Ireland, for instance, or you know, the government thought that one true fully before they did it. Well, I don't suppose they did, but they may simply say that there is, on the face of it, no way to demonstrate a causal connection in this case. No, that's not to say that it's impossible that somebody could go out and do a study that will actually do that job for us, but for the time being... No one, no one doubts, Michael, that Alcohol Action Ireland and the other Puritans only have the best of intentions and can only do good, and God knows they're not going to be questioned as to whether or not they could actually cause something negative to happen when they start messing around with issues like addiction that, frankly, I don't think these people know a lot about. I think that if, and you have actually been involved in this area in a direct way, Gary, but when you start to read about the issue of addiction and and the different morphologies of it, whether it's alcohol or whether it's crack or whether it's heroin or whatever, it becomes very clear very quickly that this is a far more complicated, nuanced kind of a thing with a lot of social context, familial contexts, maybe genetic predisposition. Oh, there are so many factors. The idea that some something as blunt an instrument as simply putting the price up of certain kinds of substances is going to produce some kind of a linear result. It's just to me a way of doing something that makes you look like you're virtuous because you're, you care and you're doing something and you're being responsible and you're doing what a government should do without really caring about the, whether or not it's actually going to produce any of the results that you would ideally like to see happen. It's pure politics as performance, it's politics as theatre, but it's not actually going to, my objection to it, as well is the fact that it actually harms people with not a lot of money who like a 
who would like a few drinks and will actually be negatively, seriously negatively impacted by this policy without any sense that this is actually going to produce some great results on the other side for people who are abusive drinkers or who put themselves in the way of harm through drinking. Yeah, but no one cares. No. I mean, you care, Michael, but you're, you know, you're a lone voice in the wilderness. A candle, a candle in the wind. Very much so, very much You're so. roughly as reliable as well. <laughs> Anyways. Because it's Sunday, and every few Sundays, Michael, blessedly, there are political polls. And we've got the newest poll. We've got a, actually two polls. Red Sea have brought out a poll, and B&A have brought out a poll as well. Um, that is Red Sea in the Business Post. The bin- Business Post actually just bought Red Sea. Anyway, this is the first piece of polling that has come out since the Zappone thing. Mm-hmm. Because we've now got polling that took place after the story broke, we can see if it's having any impact on the public. Uh, because part of the polling, Michael, was on the ratings for each of the leaders, the favourableness ratings that they're getting. And uh, Leo's down. He's down. Leo's way down. Leo is down 9%. No, it's a it's it's a it's a good jump. Well, the, on a on a satisfaction rating, you Leo had forty eight percent of people saying they were satisfied with him and his leadership of Finnegale. That's now down at thirty nine percent. That is a twenty percent drop. Yes, Mary uh, Mary Lou is leading the field at forty eight. Martin forty five, no change. Kelly forty four, no change. Ryan thirty four plus two. Satisfaction with the government down six percent. Between July and September. Oh. So, uh, yeah, the Zabone thing seems to be having an impact on Leo anyway. They haven't really done anything else other than that. No, and you'd have to say the most effective thing that Mary Lou and Sinn Féin have done for the last month is nothing. Sinn Féin have now come forward with their motion of no confidence. But up to now, they were very happy to just let the government keep tearing itself apart. Now we've gotten to a weird situation, though, because Michal Martin has come out. And he has said, Finnefall TDs who do not support Simon Coveney in the upcoming vote of no confidence will be suspended from the parliamentary party for six months. Yeah. Now, as somebody asked me, would that be suspended with or without pay? The answer, of course, is suspended with pay because it's just from the parliamentary party, not from the top. Actually, that is, that is an important point to make here. You cannot suspend a TD without pay. You can't really suspend a TD at all. TDs are basically self-employed. Yeah, you can impeach one, I mean, but you, other than that, you can't really do much. But what he's effectively doing here, he's made the decision that every single member of the parliamentary party is going to be nailed on the record as supporting Simon Coveney. And I, I just want to make this point. That that report that we were quite down on, the, the Finnefall's end of a election review that was sat on for so long, one of the main things that highlighted as damaging the party going into the last election, was that they had supported Owen Murphy in a vote of no confidence. So you bring that out, and then I think it was the day after, you say, well, there's another vote of no confidence, and if you don't vote for it, we'll suspend you for six months. Yeah, it's... That seems a willfully bad idea. And he's threatened six months if you don't support this, so it doesn't even look like the left Finnefall TDs abstain. So Finnefall TDs are going to have to go on record supporting another Finnegale minister who's having a shit show of a time, and if they don't, they'll be sacked for six months, which is, apart from the loss of ministerial pay, worse than what will happen to Coveney if he loses the vote. These days when Mihal does something like this, I've decided 
that we have to be more circumspect. So I've decided to always assume that somewhere, somewhere deep in this, there is a cunning plan. I'm coming up, I'm coming up empty, Gary, on cunning plans for this one. I just, I, I can't work it out where the cunning, strategic, long-term, clever plan is. I'm wondering also, not that it may make any difference, but where are the Greens going to be on this? I don't know. I don't think anyone has even considered the Greens. Yeah, well, you have to consider the Greens, don't you? I mean, how does the arithmetic work without the Greens? I'd be actually inter- quite interested in where a lot of the Finnegan lads are going to stand on this. <laughs> I mean, if, if now let's 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 put it this way: if the vote wasn't public, there might be a bit of an issue getting some of those Finnegan votes. Well, I put it, there might at least be an issue about getting people to get in their cars and drive to Dublin to vote for him. <laughs> there might be someone who might say, ah, there's a Junior B match on that, and I ah, couldn't be bothered. Yeah, no, no, of course, you wouldn't vote against him. There might have been some abstentions, Michael. I really loved the quotes from Martin about why they couldn't get rid of Coveney and the impact this would have. You know, Coveney is an experienced foreign minister. He's at the, he's, you know, this week he was at the UN Security Council. The consequences would be that we would lose a person of experience right now when it's needed on significant issues like Afghanistan. And the Independent published, uh, published their story under this, uh, under the headline that said, Shock says Simon Coveney's removal could impact on dealing with Afghanistan. Which is, you look at and you just try and internally figure out how could that be exactly? Well, as somebody said uh, in social media, the, the, the Taliban have threatened that if Kovni was to lose the vote of confidence, they will invade Pakistan. So, you know, it's, you have to take these things seriously, Gary. There are geopolitical uh, re- re- repercussions here that could have an effect at a global level. So anyway, here we are, Sinn Féin. Or... Sinn Féin are in the lead in a Red Sea poll for the first time ever. Yeah. They are a point or two ahead of Fine Gael on 28. I suppose the big news is Fine Gael on 28, Fianna Fáil, 13, no change. Yeah, so on the on the Red Sea poll, yeah, 13%, no change. I mean, they've been there since June. Fianna Fáil have been on 13% in Red Sea polls since the end of June. That's not good. Now, the, there is an interesting thing here. Red Sea have Sinn Féin 29, Fine Gael 28, Finnefall 13. B and A, however, have Sinn Féin 33, Finnegal 23, and Finnefall 21. Now, what I think is, is, is happening there is that Sinn Féin is close enough to be, it's not within the margin of error, but it's, it's not that far outside it. I think they're weighing Finnegal, Finnefall voters incorrectly, one of these polls. And I would say that Finnefall are probably desperately hoping B and A is the one that's weighing it correctly. I'm sure they are, and I'm sure if you rang up Mount Street or if you talked to any of the party faithful, they would tell you that for all sorts of very good polling reasons, BNA was a far more accurate reflection of the current state of affairs regarding the support of the party. However, repeat the famous cliche when it comes to polls, polls mean ultimately nothing unless you're actually close to a point where people think there may actually be a general election, and that's when people start to really start through their preferences and start to think seriously about who they're going to vote for. So you have to look at any opinion poll, not so much as a, an accurate reflection of the real support in the country, but rather as a way of measuring a trend. And if we look at Red Sea and discount for the moment, whether or not 13% is the correct number, but look at the trend, even if they've, even if they've got their weightings wrong, 
there should still, if the news is going to be good for Fianna Fáil, we should still see some kind of a trend upwards. There should be some movement. And the, for, the worrying thing for Fianna Fáil is the fact that there is no change in the trend. Fine Gael seem to be going down. They're down in both polls. Yeah. Leo's personal approval rating down 20%, nine points. Massive drop in these things. Government down 4%. It's not overall great for the government. No, this is happening, as we've said before, in the silly season. Well, you mightn't expect a whole lot to happen. But then again, these are funny times. And the handling of this whole support thing. I was talking to several people in the last couple of days, and they all say the same thing. God, I'm sick and tired of it. Oh, it's such a small, it's such a nothing story. It's such a nothing story. And they're, they're, they're saying all these, what they I think they feel are these sensible, mature things about this. And, but then, as an addendum, they all have said the same thing. God, they've made a hames of it, though. And that ultimately is the story. They, a lot of, I think most people regard it as a pretty much of a nothing story. Maybe a little bit of a mirror into people's sense of detachment regarding COVID rules and regulations. But, you know, you get over that. It's the sense that they just made a hames of it. It's kind of like someone saying something unpleasant to a politician on the street. And it happens. But it's not a news story. It's just annoying man says things to politician. Hmm. But the second a politician turns around and tells him to go and fuck himself. Yeah. Now it's a story. And that's kind of this. You've made it a story. And you keep making it a story because you just seem to love fucking up. Although, not that that's your point. I don't. I, I wonder if actually if a politician did turn around and say to the... It would have to be the right person. Well, fuck you too. It wouldn't necessarily be a bad news story for the politician. No, and actually, like I'm a strong advocate of there are certain times when it's okay for a politician to punch a member of the public. Well, the most famous and wonderful example is back in one of the elections, not the 97, I think it was a later election than that, when Tony Blair was uh, Prime Minister and leader of the Labour Party and at some... Uh, some there was an event on and John Prescott who was the deputy leader and the deputy prime minister at the time was going through the line and this fellow threw an egg at him and, and there's, the video is there famously of the first of all your man looking delighted with himself and Prescott just turning on it and he boxed apparently when he was a sailor and giving them a boom but there also in that instance and this is not really to the point was an example of the incredible sense of the temperature that Tony Blair had as a politician. I would say that 95, 99% of politicians in a situation like that would have run for cover and, oh my God, and he, he on the phone, and John, you have to apologize. This is terrible, and oh, this is awful. We you know, completely de- deplore this and violence, blah, blah. You know, what did Tony Blair say? Ah, oh, well, John is John. You know, we all know John, we all love him, but you know, that's John for you. And it resonated. And now he was able to do it because people had a certain perception of John Prescott of the type of man he was or whatever but it was a wonderful one and it did absolutely no harm in fact quite the contrary no and it's not like a dignified video either no Prescott punches the guy but the guy throws the egg from right beside Prescott Prescott punches him and then they basically there's like a, a low wall behind them and they just start wrestling on it for about <laughs> 20 seconds while police and members of the public try and pull them apart but he, he it, it, I'll put a link to the video, but it's beautiful. The guy throws the egg, Prescott turns, and yeah, you can kind of tell he boxed, because he just like rapid jab into the guy's face. 
And that was possibly what saved it because it, it felt very much like a reflex reaction rather than a thought out one. Also, it's a good punch. So I think a lot of people would have seen it and just been like, that's actually just well done. That's a decent punch there. Well done. Yeah, it's none of your lambi pamby punches. None of your Tory punching there. Good man. So what we're saying is more politicians should punch people. Well, I was about to say, we're not saying that, but okay. I think they should be careful about who they punch. So, that, yeah, those are the, the polls. Good news for Sinn Féin. Continues to be good news for Sinn Féin. Feels like it's going to be good news for Sinn Féin for a good long time. They either win the no-confidence vote, in which case they've done what Martin should have and taken down Coveney, or they lose and all of the Fine Fáil and Fine Gael TDs get to tie themselves securely to this sinking boat. Which, from just general conversations I've had with a couple of TDs, backbenchers, they are, they are really looking forward to doing that. Like, there's nothing they would rather do with their jobs than tie themselves to this shit show. Yeah. You think, like, you're a backbencher, you're going to be left alone. It's not your problem, and you can just ignore it. And they just keep trying to pull you in. You didn't do anything to them. You didn't go to the party. You didn't. You didn't lobby, you didn't answer her emails. Why do they keep annoying you? They say, for God's sake, leave me alone. Don't drag me into this shithole. I'm sure perfectly reasonable response for any Fianna Fáil backbencher. I'm trying to get some potholes filled on the road to Balahadrine. And why do you keep asking me? Stop it. Just stop doing this. I mean, it also helps that every Fine Gael TD who has attempted to publicly defend this has done terribly. Just has not. They've seemed really unprepared for how aggressive the media are about this. Or, you know, they go on national TV and say something which subsequently turns out not to be true and in doing so angers the state anti-corruption watchdog. Listen, we want... We, 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 we have flogged this particular horse a fair bit and we may come back to it again if it decides to get back up, but uh, for the time being... God, I hope we never have to talk about this again. Indeed. Well, Gary, I suppose uh, we could draw a veil over that because I'm sure the dear listeners have had more than enough of listening to me talking about the fact that they should be drinking more and for less money. And we shall return again, all things being equal. God, we'd have a, we'd have a fantastic system if we took this podcast's ideas. You'd have to pay for healthcare, but you'd save it on your alcohol. <laughs> yeah. As long as you made sure to keep your alcoholic consumption in, within the confines that didn't actually increase your not, your need for healthcare. Or don't. We're not cops. We're not cops. This is true. All the best. Bye-bye.